Well, Dave Ramsey, what a treat it is to be sitting down with you talking church today. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm surprised we got you to Minneapolis in February, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but it is a pleasure, and you're here speaking with us this weekend at our church. And uh, here just to talk to pastors, and I have a lot of questions for you. But first off, I really just want to say thank you on behalf of pastors everywhere for all that you've done for the church, for pastors, for people in our churches. We've talked about stories even in the short time we've been together about people in our church whose lives have been changed by your ministry. And so I just want to say thank you to you on behalf of thousands of pastors all across the world. So. Well, thank you. I can't think of a better group of people to serve than pastors. They spend their lives serving, and if we can do anything to make uh, make their path a little straighter, that's that's it's a joy to us. Yeah, in in some ways, I feel humbled that of all the pastors you could be sitting down with, and I know you've sat down with many amazing ones. That you're sitting down here with me. Uh, we were joking before we started that financial or the Ramsey Show has been going on for longer than I've been alive, and uh, so you've been helping people uh, all over the world. And so I have lots of questions for you. So hopefully, right. bear with me. But my first question is: In some ways, do you ever feel like you are a pastor? I listen to the Ramsey Show all the time, and there's a lot of counseling calls. There's a lot of people that are like calling with needs and you're helping them and there's so many lives that were changed. Do you ever feel that way or talk about that? We teach our team to be pastors, mm. to be pastoral, mm. uh, not pastors in the sense of staff on a church, but uh, to be pastoral in our approach and uh, loving and biblical and truth-telling and um, compassionate and, and walking with the wounded, uh, but identifying what caused the wound. Mm. So we don't get more of it. And, um, yeah, that's got to be our approach. Uh, our hope is actually that we're evangelists. Mm. Uh, you know, we're pastoral for, with the goal of being evangelists. We're not trying to pastor a local congregation for sure. Uh, but by being pastoral in the approach, loving, kind, truth-telling, so on, we, and, you know, dropping Scripture in the middle of mainstream every day for 30-plus years, uh, uh you know, the, the, the fruit of that is is that some people that would maybe never darken the door of a church uh, will meet Christ, and they do. They mm -hmm. do. We get lots and lots of wonderful stories and testimonies of uh, people getting uh, saved. And, you know, like actually with you guys this weekend, we had a guy who did his debt-free scream. He was suicidal and came to Christ uh, because he was listening to us and started looking for a church and found your church. And your guys led him to Christ and baptized him. And um uh, so it was a tag team. Yeah. Uh, some plant, some harvest, right? Yes. And, uh, but it was, uh, uh, you know, that's our hope that there's tens of thousands of those every day. Mm -hmm. Getting all these calls, has that impacted some of the new people that you've brought onto the team? You know, you look at John Deloney and others that just have had different expertise. How have you looked at growing your team, knowing that there's so many different needs than from 31 years ago when you started? You know, when we started, I really did think we were just teaching biblical finance, what the Bible says in, you know, common sense, get out of debt, be on a budget, and so on. But what we started figuring out very quickly was the reason God deals with finance uh, 2,500 plus times in Scripture, money and possessions, is because our behaviors, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the behaviors come out of our values, and in order to change your money, you can't just change the 
mathematical, intellectual, tactical part of your brain, you have to transform your behaviors, which is your attitude, your spirit. So your spiritual walk is woven into personal finance more than I realized. And what that ends up meaning is, is that I have people come up and go, you saved our marriage. And I went, we weren't teaching the sex class. That was the other guys, you know, <laughs> uh, you saved our, our business. I wasn't teaching that. And, uh, but what I was teaching you is how to make you better because that is going to make your money better. And so that has opened up the door then to a Ken Coleman talking about career and is now on 75 radio stations doing that, a very popular podcast talking about, you know, your work matters to God, basically, uh, finding your your uh, thing there. And Dr. John Deloney in the mental uh, health arena, but that's boundaries, that's relationships, that's whatever. But all of that is woven together in this be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. And for us, we've seen that to be true. We've been at our church doing financial peace for over 20 years. And to us, it seems obvious that those things come together. But in a lot of ways, I see pastors struggle to talk about money. What would you say to somebody who maybe feels that struggle? Like they, you know, again, for us, we see it's obvious that the interconnected to our spirit and our soul and our body and our life and our money, but there's still a lot of pastors. We talk to them all the time when we're traveling, doing our generosity events that say, I'm afraid to talk about it. Even though the Bible talks about it over, you know, 2,500 times, what would you say to them? Well, we've certainly seen that for 30 years, um, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I, I sympathize with the idea of you don't want to be one of those churches in air quotes where they, you know, someone walks away going, well, they want your money. And um, as an unbeliever, I heard that from relatives. You know, they were like, oh, don't go over that church. All they want is your money. All that church wants is your money. And that's true sometimes. But what a pastor that doesn't want to talk about money is afraid to be labeled that mm. because they're afraid if they present it wrong that someone's going to misunderstand. Um, or maybe they feel inept in their own personal finances. Mm. And so there's some shame. I don't want to talk about something I'm not doing well. Uh, but the best sermons I've ever heard as a member of the congregation, is when the pastor is very authentic about his marriage mm -hmm. or very authentic about his shortcomings in whatever area without being over the top. But I mean, not overshare. But I mean, when they're, when they're a real human mm -hmm. up there and they're authentic, then uh, as a person who's sitting in the congregation, I'm much more willing to lead, be led by them to follow them rather than putting up a perfect, I have to be perfect at anything before I talk about it, mm -hmm. which is kind of absurd, really. Yeah. So, but, <laughs> never get so, there. so what I would encourage pastors to do is just think about your narrative and how you're going to approach it and uh, that it, you're not leaving. If someone takes away from Pastor Rob talking about money, that all that church wants is their money, they weren't listening mm -hmm. because it's not how he's presenting it. Yeah. He's presenting that God is doing a work, and you can participate in this thing that God is doing. Mm -hmm. And it's not this church needs it. It's not we're trying to raise money for my jet. You know, it's not any yeah. of that stuff, okay? It's not any of that wicked, weird, toxic stuff that we were all afraid of looking like that guy. Um, so don't be afraid of looking like that guy and walk away from the thing and say, you know, hey, I can't talk about marriage because my marriage isn't perfect, and I'm afraid if I talk about it wrong in a culture where more people live together than are married— um, you know, I don't, I might, you know, I might offend someone. Well, mm. you're going to offend someone. Yeah. The gospel is offensive, but you can do it in a winsome way that, um, that just pushes them out of the saddle and causes them to be, you know, have a Damascus road experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes, 
uh, even with social media, and I know that's your favorite thing, right? Um, <laughs> it, it has overblown that to a point where people are afraid. You know, there's been accounts recently with pastors that people are posting pastors being wealthy and wearing watches and shoes. Um, what would you say about the myth that pastors are supposed to not be wealthy? I mean, if they follow your baby steps and get baby steps millionaires and follow the plan, but maybe they're feeling convicted about, well, maybe I'll still preach it for other people, but I myself, you know, I, I don't want to do this, but we see so many pastors holding on to their church for 70, 80, you know, 90 years old because they don't have a retirement. Yeah. You know, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't handle their finances biblically. A godly man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. God gives you the power to build wealth, Deuteronomy says. So if you are, you know, part of the problem is some pastors say, well, pastors shouldn't be wealthy because they actually believe Christians shouldn't be. Hmm. And so they're afraid they're setting up a model by become by actually handling their money well. And, you know, now you don't want to become wealthy uh, like a hog at the trough, you know, by eating out of the church to the point of that. But I know lots of pastors um, that are national figures that have book deals. They speak outside the church. They do all kinds of things. And they've steadily invested over many, many years. And they have built a level of wealth. But they have a level of success mm -hmm. that goes with that. Um, and they didn't... Uh, uh, milk the congregation dry in order for that to happen. No one with ethics would tell a pastor to do that. But on the other hand, if your reaction to that having happened a couple of times, and it has happened, um, is to say, oh, I'm going to be poor, or I'm going to do a bad job of handling money, or I'm going to be disorganized and just hope it all works out. I've had pastors tell me, well, I've got faith. And I said, well, have faith enough to follow the scriptures. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I, in America, especially, and in the West, I think, you know, you've talked about this on your show, but it's relatively simple to become a millionaire if you invest steadily over time. Um, but I now think... Let's just talk $100 yeah. a month yeah. into a growth stock mutual fund from 25 to 65 is $1,176,000. Yeah. $100 yeah. a month. That's not 10000 that that's not you know you 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 know th this is just a reasonable level of diligence mm -hmm. and the scripture says the diligent prosper so yeah it does for, for a pastor to have worked all those years and retire completely broke is actually a bad witness sure. that they've not been diligent that they've not been disciplined no discipline seems pleasant at the time but it yields a harvest of righteousness. There's scripture upon scripture upon scripture upon scripture to do this. And this is not a prosperity gospel thing I'm talking about. I don't have enough hair to do that. It's not <laughs> what it is. It's not that at all. This is a this is a sowing and reaping gospel, a cause and effect gospel. And so I just encourage pastors to be a good witness in your marriage, the way you treat your wife. Be a good witness in the way you handle the money that you do have. And then you can look up and say, I'm not dependent upon this congregation to feed me because I've done a good job. I've been a good steward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so good. As you've gone throughout these years, are there has that become more evident to you as you've worked with more churches, more, worked with more pastors? Are you seeing a trend to where pastors are coming to you now more saying, hey, thank you, I've been applying it? Or do you feel like it's still a, a struggle and lagging behind maybe some of the people who are a part of your program? You know, it, it it's all over the map. Um, one of the things we've been doing in the last two years has been really rewarding for us spiritually um, is we've 
given Financial Peace University to pastors for free. Mm. And we've got pastoral online pastoral groups where it's pastors in a group with other pastors mm. having the discussion as they go through Financial Peace University. So they're not in front of their own congregation yeah, bearing their souls. They're there with yeah. other pastors on. And we give it to them free. So just come to RamseySolutions.com. It's completely free. Yes, they we love right pastors, now. and That's we want awesome. to show them how to do it. And, and the truth is most pastors don't make a lot of money. Sure. Let's face it. They're not they're, The number of pastors that make 100 k a year, there's not many of them. Yeah. Uh, statistically, as a percentage of the churches that are out there. Uh, I think the last number I saw was something like 74% or 82% or something, somewhere in that range are, are bivocational. They yep. got another job yep. just to be able to run the, to, just to keep the doors open. So they're not, they're not, you know, they're not making bank in that sense. So I, we love them and we want to come alongside them and help them. But one of the things that's so interesting is in your study of the millionaires, can you talk about the the top professions that were millionaires? They're not really super high income earning jobs, and so pastors maybe could throw their hat and say, "Hey, if they can do it, I can do it." Well, like I said, a hundred bucks. Yeah, hundred bucks a month. You know, and so you're right. The top five people that showed up in the millionaire study: number one was engineer, number two was accountant, number three was teacher, uh, number four was um, a business executive, and number five was attorneys. Medical doctors didn't even make the top five. They're at number six. But what we what we couldn't figure out is how teachers landed in the middle of that, and middle level managers ended up in the middle of that. And engineers, I mean, you think of an engineer and an accountant. Yeah, they do math, and you know, but they don't typically make six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars a year or something. Yeah. Uh, but what we figured out that those people all had in common is they're process people. They're people that believe in a process. There's one way to build a bridge and it doesn't fall down if you're an engineer. There's one way to do accounting. If you're an accountant, there's not three ways. You don't get to be creative as your accountant, right? And there's, there's, you know, if you're a teacher, you're following a lesson plan. You got a syllabus you're sticking with, right? Attorneys, there's a set of laws. You have to follow those laws. Set of procedures in court. You have to follow the procedures. You don't get options. You have to, you have to submit yourself to a proven process. Mm -hmm. And really, that's what these financial principles are. The people that win are the ones that submit themselves to this proven process. Maybe that's why some pastors struggle. I mean, we're Pentecostal. We don't, yeah. You know, yeah, processes don't, don't always exist around us. We're just going to throw our hand up and <laughs> yell at the devil. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm with you. I get it. I mean, I we want to be creative on that. But, uh, you know, I did have a, a, a pastor whose name everyone would know if I mentioned it. He said, Dave, I've been listening to you for years, and I didn't do it. And he goes, in the last three years, I've, I've done such and such and such and such with my net worth. Mm -hmm. And he goes, it's changed everything. And he goes, all it was was I had to submit yeah. to a process. Mm -hmm. I had to bow down to a process that was bigger than me, and I couldn't excuse it away with any um, spiritual mumbo-jumbo. I just mm -hmm. had to do the thing. Yeah. And um, it changed his life. And he's a good friend of mine. I didn't even know he wasn't doing the stuff, but sure. he was like, I kind of was half thinking, you know, you're cute. You got your little thing over there, Ramsey. And he goes, when I submitted myself to the process, I realized it was God's stuff, not yours, Ramsey. Yeah. And uh, he said, that helped me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. Don't don't just take your word for really, it. Really, please don't take my word for it. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. And, and I think for pastors, we teach that to people all the time, right? If you want your marriage to get in a better place, or if you want your kids, like, bring them to church, you know, don't, don't give them the option to sleep yeah. in or whatever it is. And we do a good job of that, of communicating it. And I, I think there are people who teach for a living sometimes struggle with even listening to their own advice. Yeah. Have you felt that at all, even teaching? I mean, you had the bankruptcy moment that kind of taught you really fast. Well, that's how we hit bottom. And, uh, you know, I was a baby Christian at the time. And so, I, and I didn't know beans about anything in scripture or anything else. And that was 
um, you know, 35, 36 years ago now. But hitting that bottom, we always say, you know, I met God on the way up. I got to know him on the way down. But I was in the process as I had a brand new baby, a toddler, a marriage hanging on by a thread. And I was basically a hell-raising hillbilly, you know, that met Jesus, right? And so I didn't, you know, the preacher would say, and you know when they threw Joseph in the hole? And I'm like, no, don't know Joseph, don't know the hole, don't know anything about his brothers, you know. And so <laughs> I have to go look it up that night. I had to do a Bible study because I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't want to be ashamed. of. They assumed I had knowledge I didn't have just from the pulpit. And so, uh, you know, I spent the last 40 years then studying and studying and studying to catch up. And But I, I figured out I had to learn how to be a man. Mm-hmm. I had to learn how to be a husband. I had to learn how to later to be a leader in running an organization. I had to learn how to handle money. I had to learn how to be a dad. Um, I I wasn't any of those things. And, it, you know, Jesus has and his word has completely transformed my life, mm-hmm. completely changed my family tree. The direction of the Ramsey family tree is completely different. It's hard to conceive how far it has come. But that's the power of Scripture. It does surgery on the heart. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever heard your uh, salvation story. Maybe you've shared it before, but would you mind sharing how you came to faith in Christ? Not a bit. And uh, by the way, you can get this online or you can get it with our Financial Peace University. It's in there. The Better Than I Deserve story. Sure. Because we talk, walk people down a Roman road. I have been so through financial peace, by the way. That's okay. I'm just, that's okay. Yeah. But yeah, but no, I mean, we've added that in yeah, the last okay. year okay. because we taped it all out uh, because I've always told it and uh, to lead people to Christ that go through financial peace. So we... Re- Welcome down a Roman road with my story, but the short version is is, is that I didn't grow up in a, uh, a family that was a church family or a Christian family, and so uh, I was a hell-raising, beer-drinking kid, and, and we, I married my wife, and she's, you know, we've been dating for years, and she never said anything about this Jesus stuff, but we get married, and she remembered she was a Baptist, and so besides <laughs> we're going to church, and I'm like, who are you? I'm not going to church. Sunday's when you drink beer and watch football. This is right after you get married. Yeah, like two <laughs> weeks after we get married. She had a fit and stormed out. Of course, we're in Nashville. There's more Baptists than people, so she stormed out and found a Baptist church in about 30 seconds to join, and those Baptist people prayed for her heathen husband. And, so this went on for about a year. It was, it was not a good start to my marriage, and so I was in this... Uh, sales thing, and I go to the sales conference, and the guy in the sales conference stands up and answers every question I had about anything, and then at the end, he answered a question I didn't have, which is he said, if you don't know this man named Jesus, you need to get to know him because it's going to change your life. It's going to revolutionize everything because you'll you'll learn to serve rather than to, you'll be a giver rather than a taker, and people can smell it when you're in sales if you're a taker. Mm. You need to be a giver. And I went home, told my wife we're going to church, and she's like, who are you, and what would you do with my husband? So I wandered in the back door of this little Pentecostal church, about 400 people, and they were raising their hands like they knew the answer to some question. It scared me to death. I told Sharon, if they get snakes out, I'm out of here. And so um, that that old pastor um, led me to the Lord shortly thereafter and baptized me. And um, I had the uh, distinct honor. The church later grew to about 10,000 people wow. and um, uh, in the 80s and uh, the big mega church movement type of thing. But I had the honor uh, a year ago this month of preaching his funeral. Wow. Wow, what a legacy. Yeah. Yeah, you never know. And a lot of people bring up the Billy Graham and who led him to the Lord and who led this person. But even in a congregation, no matter how big or small, there's people whose yeah. lives need to be changed. And, you know, even sharing in our, you know, even this weekend, people when you're speaking that are saying yes to Jesus. And mm-hmm. I'm hoping that they're going to build amazing lives and futures and stories. Amen. Um one thing that I've noticed uh, about the baby steps, and it took me to do it 
to realize this. I've obviously you've been preaching this on the radio for over 30 years, but it's not about the math. It's about belief. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the power of belief and what it does to you again through the baby steps, but even more than that, how it helps people to change their life? Well, uh, psychologists call it a feedback loop. Um, and it's just, if you do something and get a positive result, you're going to do it again. And, um, what, what we figured out by looking at finance, see, I've got a finance degree and all the letters and licenses after my name in academics, but the, and I, you know, used to sell mutual funds. I was in the insurance business. I've been around those industries and where, what I realized was that none of those people, none of them literally look at finance except through the lens of math. It's a simple math thing. Yeah. It's math. One plus one is two, period, shut up, do it. And what I realized looking at it through the lens of the Bible is that personal finance is 80% behavior. It's 20% head knowledge. And sometimes I'll have uh, folks in the mainstream, you know, some uh, reporter who's a little bit antagonistic or something will say, well, why do, you, why do you think you need to quote Scripture? Are you just trying to prove a point? And I'm like, well, no, I quote Scripture because it works. And here's why it works. Because if you think you can deal with finance as a single department compartment of your life without addressing the behaviors, without addressing the, um, the relational aspects in your marriage, without addressing how your career is doing, which is another relational piece, and if you don't think all of those things are spiritual, then you're really naive. And so to not quote Scripture, to not go at this through the lens of a behavior modification uh, a transformation of the person would be inaccurate. It would be just the wrong way to do it. Not right. ethically wrong, but it would just be it just be wrong. You, wrong answer on the test. And you know, you'd get an X. Okay, and so that's the problem in my mind with a lot of the financial world is it it leaves all that out. So belief comes in to behavior then, and say uh, you know, and, and so you, you're going to no one is going to sacrifice for a greater good unless they believe it's going to work. Why would I quit eating chocolate donuts <laughs> ever? Why would I not eat a dozen at every setting? They're awesome. Except that I do, that my belief is that if I do that, I'm going to be as big as a house. <laughs> and I have been I, because of chocolate donuts. It's a personal problem for me. Okay. So, but my belief is, is that, okay, I have to, I have a better life if I limit my intake of calories, particularly chocolate covered donuts. And so if I limit my intake, I have a, my, my clothes fit nicer. I can walk across the room and not be out of breath. I'm going to be able to live and play with my grandchildren. And so I'm willing to sacrifice, but I'm not willing to sacrifice unless I believe it's going to work. So that's the belief. Yeah. I have to believe it's going to work. And so where a, a believer in Christ has an advantage is they can look over at Scripture and go, you know, I don't care what Dave Ramsey says. The Bible says, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. I believe that if I save money, I'm wise. I, therefore, am going to act on that belief. Mm -hmm. 
And if you don't believe that, then why would you? Why would you not just think, thank God it's Friday, oh God, it's Monday, YOLO, baby, yeah. you know? You know, let's just live for the weekend. <laughs> Be Huey Lewis in the news, right? Yeah. And so why, why wouldn't you? That's, you should, if you, if you, unless you believe that the sacrifice is going to take you somewhere. But I believe if I will live on less than I make and invest that I can become a millionaire and I can become even more than a millionaire and I can change my family tree financially and I can be outrageously generous because I'm not broke. I believe that and, and because Scripture shows me that and math shows me that and all these things. So those, that belief then causes my behavior. But no, and here's what's weird. When people start like the debt snowball, they start paying off their debts, their belief increases. Mm -hmm. And as it increases, they sacrifice deeper. Yeah. And when they sacrifice deeper, mathematically, what happens? More money comes to the top. Yeah. And they get out of debt faster. Mm -hmm. So the more they believe, the deeper they sacrifice, the more intense they are, the faster they get out of debt. Yeah. And that's why this feedback loop works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw that to be true in my own life, and my wife's going to be happy that I'm sharing this. Um, <laughs> but our first year of marriage, I ran a small business and a fashion company. My wife is in fashion and way more successful than I was. Um, the business doesn't exist anymore, so you know where the story's going. Um, but I was putting all of our orders on credit cards, and I was like, oh, this is it. I'm going to sell out. It's going to be amazing. I'm just, I'm going to blow the roof off my sales because I came from sales. I worked at Nordstrom. I was one of the best salespeople, and I was, oh, it's easy to sell. Well, I realized it's not as easy as I thought it was. So I ended up racking up uh, $17,000 on credit cards. And my wife knew that I was doing that, but she didn't know the amount. And it wasn't anywhere. She probably thought it was a couple thousand. So one day I finally had my moment where it was running out. I, I knew I, I couldn't get any more credit, whatever. So I had to confess to her, like really choking up, realizing that I've lied to my wife and I need to confess to her. So I, I told her, I have $17,000 on these business credit cards. And as you share with people, business credit cards are your credit cards. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I don't know what to do. We've got to get out of this. This is our first year of marriage. I remember she was so gracious to me, but she said, let's get out of this. Let's dig as hard as we ever can dig, but never do that again. Amen. And so we did. And I remember it was our first month and I'm a spreadsheet guy and I made all these spreadsheets. And the first month we paid off, I think it was like $600. Mm -hmm. And then we saw some friends who were going to Goodwill and they were buying stuff and reselling them on Poshmark and eBay and all sorts of stuff. We started moving. The next payment was like 2000 And then we sold $4,000 worth of stuff. Then her mom hears about it and she did a good job selling, gets a bonus at work. And all of a sudden we ended up paying off that much and, and all the interest. It was $20,000 in four months yeah, because we just sold everything. We went crazy and we never want to do it again. And then I said, I got to pay my car off. And we started throwing 2000 at the car and we did it. And the whole debt-free journey, again, pastor salary, it was first year of marriage and we got it done in like six months yeah. because we just went crazy. And they were like, we never want to do that ever again. But it started at 600. Yeah, it did. And the feedback loop encouraged you. Yeah. And so, you know, I, this might work. Mm -hmm. This might work. Hey, this is going to work. Yeah. Ah, let's go. Yeah. You know, and that's what happened. That it increases. And that's why this is a spiritual thing, not a math thing. Mm -hmm. You got to get the math too. Yeah. You got to look at the math and go, well, we got to get the income up. We got to yeah. find some money. You know, you, you, there's two sides of the equation. But but this idea that you can do this only with intellect is absurd. Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about Bible college? Because I think that sometimes pastors, they make a decision when they're 18, 19, 20, and they get so far behind because they're going into debt because they feel called to be a pastor. And I know so many people where I went to school— 
so many other universities that they graduate with fifty, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars in debt, and they're going into a job maybe making thirty thousand dollars, or maybe not even getting paid, and have to get a side job. Um, what would what is your whole thought on? I mean, I, I know your thought on it, but give me your thoughts in general on uh, all of that situation. That I think sets people behind. Well, first and foremost, you got to know um, anybody that's ever done anything dumb with money. I've done dumber. I've got a PhD in DUMB. So, if you're a pastor that went to Bible college and ran up a bunch of debt, I've, I've been dumber than you have. So. Yeah. Um, but then we can pan back from that. You know, let's take shame and guilt off the table, sure. condemnation off the yeah. table. That's not what this discussion's about. Uh, instead, let's go around to the other side of it and say, okay, look, we're sitting down with an 18-year-old who's got the call of God on his life, and he needs to be trained. He needs to know something. Um, but that's going to probably take a while before he's in a senior pastor's role in addition to academic studies, he's got some experience he needs, some mentoring, some apprenticeship he does. Um, so there's a process that he's going to go through there. But if you're sitting with an 18-year-old who really does have the hand of God on him and he really does need to be trained, then we've got to ask ourselves, all right, what does God's Word say about this? And um, I just go back to I spent a lot of my stuff is a lot of time in Proverbs, obviously, uh, but the psalmist says, the blessings of the Lord have no sorrow added to them. And um, oh, I, I got approved for the school and I got the student loan, and that's God's blessing. Mm-hmm. Well, it's inconsistent with Scripture. And so that makes it hard to be a, call it a blessing. And, um, and it's going to bring trouble. You know, as I was meeting with a young couple one time at the church and counseling them, and the guy had gotten himself into a $700 car payment. And he's like, uh, and he's, you know, his income was like 1400 bucks. His dadgum car payment's half of it. And I said, you need to sell the car. And he goes, I can't sell the car. God gave me this car. And I said, God did not give you this car. He said, how do you know? And I said, I'm positive God didn't give you this car. Your, your baby doesn't have food. Your lights are getting cut off. You're going to get evicted because of this car payment. God did not give you this car. Yeah. You know, the blessings of the Lord have no sorrow added to them. And I'm looking at a man with sorrows, you know, and so I'm positive of that. He's like, well, even the finance manager said it was a miracle. I said, yeah, I think so. It's like, come on, Different dude. Different kind of miracle. <laughs> really, seriously. But that's a little bit where this falls into. And so there's two things at play. One is um, I've studied Scripture and been challenged on this by good theological minds for 35 years. Um, and I've yet to find anyone who can show me where God used debt to accomplish his purposes, where God used debt as a tool. Uh, Larry Burkett used to say, you know, the, there's never a time in Scripture that the, uh, the Hittites and the Amalekites had the Israelites hemmed down in the valley, so they did a bond issue. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just <laughs> not, it's not, it's not in there. And so there's never a time that God, every singular mention of debt in Scripture, and it's mentioned many, many times, it's not a sin, never says it's a sin. Mm-hmm. and certainly not a salvation issue for sure. Uh, it's not big enough. It doesn't fall in that category. But every single mention is negative. Mm. And if every single mention is negative, that's God going, my daughter, my son, this is not the best way for you. I love you, mm. and you can probably survive it, and no, it's not, it's not like being sexual immorality. It's not sin, mm-hmm. 
but it's just dumb, biblically yeah. speaking. So if we take the, that and we say, all right, if that's what Scripture says, the preponderance of Scripture, when you study it carefully, then if you're borrowing money to do anything, you're, you're stepping outside that. And God doesn't talk against himself. Mm-hmm. So God does not call you to go into debt. That's my point. Sure, yeah. For the for the reason of the preponderance of Scripture is against it, number one. Number two, the blessings of the Lord have no sorrow added to them. So how, does that, how do we take that to the Bible college discussion? Well, it means that you got to find another way to go to school. Yeah. Um, whatever your school is, Bible or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's Bible doesn't make stupid okay. <laughs> you know, that's not. it doesn't do that. So yeah. I'm not going to tell that 18-year-old to go $100,000 in debt for a, uh, a position... You know, I'm not going to, but that doesn't even pay that well on yeah. average. So the math doesn't work. It's bad career advice versus like here at the church this afternoon, we were speaking, a girl comes up to me and she says, I'm, I'm going into student loan debt to be a nurse anesthetist. Well, she's going to make 450 a year when she gets out. And I still told her I wouldn't go in debt. Yeah. Because I don't, can't tell where the Bible says to do it. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm not going to, but, but at least she has a mathematical reason. Sure. Yeah. You know, there's at least, she's going to make 450 grand the other side of that, but she's going to come out with $200,000 in student loan debt if she's mm-hmm. careful. If she's not careful, three or 400,000. Yeah. And so, uh, but she can pay that off in 20 minutes if she'll live like a college student. Yeah. But, and, and that almost makes it kind of okay, but it's still not biblical. Yeah. I'm still not going to tell someone I love to do something that's contrary to Scripture because I don't see it bringing a blessing in their life. Yeah, and if you're going to go through a program that rigorous and work a job that makes that much, then you probably are smart enough to figure it out to get your way through. It it, it just seems ironic to me that the Bible, which talks against debt— you know, that we're going to study the Bible at Bible college going into debt that yeah. talks against it. it. Just the irony of that is deep. Do you feel like the institutions that are, again, the public ones, it's different, I guess. They don't believe the same things we do. But the Christian institutions, do you feel like there's any sort of uh, responsibility on them and their role? Or do you, in some ways, I feel like they're just saying, hey, we're trying to survive whatever you want to do, but like you don't take credit cards. Right. Do you feel like that universities should maybe step up and say, hey, we want to help pastors. We want to do this, or is it? It's on the. the I, I quit managing everybody else's business a long time ago. I mean, <laughs> I, if I were running it, I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. Because of what I believe. But if you believe something different, then we can still be friends. Yeah. I just don't believe that. Yeah. And so, um, it would you know, if I cut up credit cards for thirty years and tell people not to use credit cards, only to have a debit card, and then I took credit cards in our yeah. web store, that would be about as hypocritical as you can believe. Yeah. So I, I can manage me. I can manage my own hypocrisy. So we don't take credit cards. Yeah. We take only debit cards, and um, you know, and we make a big deal about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but you know, it's just you got to think about what God loves you, and he, he here's his love letter, and he says, "My son, my daughter." This is the best way to live. Mm-hmm. And then we don't do that. Yeah. And it just breaks my heart. Yeah. How have you learned to deal with criticism over the years? Uh, sometimes not well. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a warrior. And, um, uh, you you know, and so my tendency is to hit back, and that's not, not good. I shouldn't do that. Um, but there's times you have to fight. Uh, you have to fight through something. You don't have a choice. Um, and sometimes you need to pick a fight in the, a toxic culture uh, in the name of Jesus. And um, there is a place for warriors. Um, but uh, I think that the thing is is that I just need to back up and go, okay, well, who am I really trying to serve here? Some, you know, some 23-year-old lives in his mother's basement and has got a Twitter account. 
uh, nah. Not, I mean, that, he, he didn't get he didn't get a vote on where Ramsey's going. Um, I really the beautiful thing about having gone broke and lost everything is I lost my fear of man. Hmm. I really. And sometimes I'm truly kind of bad, honestly. I don't care what people think. <laughs> I really only care what Jesus thinks. And I, I should even care maybe a little bit what my wife thinks. But I'm mm-hmm. just, I really don't have this need to have everyone be happy mm-hmm. because I, once I hit bottom, there was nobody there. Mm-hmm. There was nobody there voting for us. There was just Sharon and me and some hungry little kids and Jesus. Yeah. And that was it. And so, you know, if that's all, if we're ever back to that, we can do it again. I mean, we're fine. Yeah. But um, so, but it, it's I, I'm also human, and I'm like anyone else. It hurts your feelings when people say horrible things about you, especially when they're not true. I mean, at least if you're going to say a horrible thing about me, make sure it's right. You know? <laughs> but, you know. That's funny. No, I think that a lot of young people struggle with that. I know I do. You know, struggle with what people think. Social media. We've always been in the spotlight and trying to show the best of our life yeah. and compare it against, or the best of other people's life, comparing that against the worst of ours. Well, the beauty of your generation is you grew up with this magic wand in your hand and you had access to a lot of wonderful things, but you also had access to, uh, uh, it it gave people that had not earned the right to have an opinion, the the ability to have an opinion. Right. And that's why I always make fun of the 24-year-old in his mother's basement, because they haven't earned the right, you know, stinking tic-tac, you know, they're, they're a dadgum uh, financial expert, and they've never had two nickels to rub together, yeah. you know, and so that, that's the problem with social media. That's why I pick on it all the time. But the good parts of social media is it taught the last two generations um, to have agency, to have autonomy, that they could speak up, that they could be heard, and that they had a voice. Uh, that part's good. There was just no respect, and there was no guidance to keep that, uh, to, to give that some nobility. Mm-hmm. But it's, um, I think you guys, are, I think your generations have got a real head start on, a, on changing the world. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited about Gen Z. I've got a bunch of Gen Z on our team and I'm excited about them. Um, and I'm excited about what really the positives that can be done with an iPhone or mm-hmm. uh, Google or whatever. But, but boy, there's a lot of negatives too. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I think pastors struggle with is obviously talking about money, which we've addressed, but what would your advice be to pastors who maybe have someone like you in their congregation that is a wealthy Christian that is uh, following God's principles, but maybe they're intimidated by the wealth of people in their congregation? High-capacity people. We've talked to pastors for years about them. And the weird thing is I often have done little miniature events where I would bring high-capacity people with pastors together. And what's very weird is it's kind of like the, the beautiful girl in high school that you were intimidated to ask out, but you go to your 10-year class reunion and you find out she always wanted you to ask her out. And you're like, I never had a chance. And you're like, well, all you had to do is ask because I was waiting on you. you know. And so they're, they're kind of that way. Like the the pastors are intimidated by the business people and the business people are intimidated by the, the, by the spiritual yeah. uh, acumen of the pastor. And so these two people are very insecure. It's almost humorous. They're very accomplished in their own spaces, but they're insecure to talk to each other. And if you can ever just go to lunch, it changes everything hmm. because that high-capacity business person, high-capacity financial performer um, has spiritual needs as, the same as a single mom. Mm-hmm. they got the exact same spiritual needs. Yeah. And so that pastor still needs to love them and pastor them. And they're going to be... It, it, we, we assign, we give attribution to uh, someone who's successful 
we attribute uh, other parts of their life being successful that's not true. You know, for instance, you take a, a young music artist who becomes very popular or a young football player, you know, NFL, 24 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's top of his game. But when he steps outside of football, really he's dumber than a rock. He doesn't know nothing about nothing. But we give them, we, we attribute to where we want to buy insurance like they tell us to buy insurance. But they're a 24-year-old football player. Yeah. But the music artist, but because they made a lot of money, because they were successful, because they stepped in the spotlight, we give them, we, we give them attribution of having other characteristics that they don't have. Mm-hmm. And the same is true with the high-capacity person. You, just because they're successful in business doesn't mean they're, uh, that they, you can't give them attribution of having a, a strong and powerful spiritual walk or that their marriage is okay, mm-hmm. or that they had, didn't have trauma as a child, uh, that they still need spiritual healing from. They still need the same pastoring. Mm-hmm. And the pastors, the, you know, the high-capacity guy is intimidated by the pastor and, and because the pastor seems to have it all together. But when you sit down and you're a business person and you sit down with a pastor, you find that the vast majority of them can't balance their checkbook. Sure. And so I could really be a blessing in this person's life. And, and so it's a wonderful place for these two uh, very accomplished people to get to know each other and love each other, and then they can spill in, and and you can guide people. The the thing I do tell pastors all the time is be very, very, very careful not to bring um, uh, 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 insults from the pulpit towards wealth, mm. because the culture is already telling that wealthy person that they're a dog, that they're horrible, that the wealth is evil, and that they're bad. And that money is the root of all evil, which the Bible does not say that. The love of money is the root of all evil. So they're already being put down by the communist portion of the culture, right? They're already being slammed. And if they get a slam out of the pulpit, then they'll just crawl in a hole and hide. Mm -hmm. They might keep going to church there, but you'll never find them. Yeah. Because they're just they're gonna stay invisible because they don't they don't think you they think, you know, okay, you you run a brothel or something, right? And so I have to hide. You know, that's the way they feel. They sure. feel dirty. Yeah. And so you need to clean them up and tell them how wonderful they are, that they're serving. And as my friend Rabbi Lappin says, they're getting certificates of appreciation from customers mm-hmm. with president's faces on them. Yeah. And, you know, love them and affirm them that they're doing a good job in the community and then walk alongside them and help them build their spiritual life. Yeah. No, that's so good. And I think, you know, the Bible says the rich fall into many temptations, and it's we want to be a pastor who walks alongside people. Um, but you're right, it's the love of money. And I've met people that don't have much that love money way more. Oh, yeah. And there's people who have a lot that don't love money at all, and they're so generous and they live that yeah. way. A pastor has an opportunity to, to um, affirm a believer that has been successful financially and also to help them understand they don't own it. Mm-hmm. And just a manager. Yeah. So just be a manager. As long as you're a manager, you're in safe zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're not. You're not going to get into the. There's lots of scripture warning, warnings about it, wealth, but almost all of it comes back to that core thing. Once you take ownership away of the money, away from God, of the assets, away from God. Once you say, "Okay, God, look what I've done. Mm-hmm. I have some money now." Instead of God, this is all yours. I'm managing it for you. Once you do that, then you fall into all those mm-hmm. temptations of the wealth. Yeah, yeah. We teach people here at River Valley to have a plan, to be generous, to have a vision of what God could do, and then to have a dream. What's a dream amount that you could give to God that would be beyond your wildest dreams? And we've had business owners and people in companies and just all walks of life that come up to us in tears and saying, thank you for giving a purpose to my yeah. money. Yeah. Because honestly, at some point, the wealth doesn't do anything. 
you know, I try to tell pastors and everybody else all the time, if you eat enough lobster, it tastes like soap. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't matter. You, you you get the nicest car in the world, some idiot will run into it. You know, I mean, it doesn't there, – stuff is just stuff. Get you some. It's okay to have some nice things. Yeah. It's not against the Bible. But but at some point, the value of things in your emotions and your psychology um, and in your spiritual walk starts to diminish, and you go, okay, what is eternal? Mm-hmm. What matters? What is significant? And how can I leave a, a mark of a legacy? Mm-hmm. And people that build wealth, that's how they start thinking, mm-hmm. if they grow up. Yeah. yeah, that's true. As someone who has had a front row seat to who I believe is one of the greatest leaders in the world, and my dad, um, you've had the chance to work with your kids a lot. Uh, what are some things that you've learned about working with your kids in a ministry? It happens a lot. And then secondly, how are you starting to think You've been doing this for over 30 years. What does succession look like for you? Do you want to do this for the next 20, 30 years? Or are you feeling like, hey, there's, I want to hand this off more? I think a lot of pastors feel that way as well. Um, pastors that don't have their succession plan already working are late. If you're 27 and you're a pastor and you start working on your succession plan right now, you're late. Because all the data that we have, we've studied family businesses and, and family ministries. Everything we've studied has some basic principles to it. Um, and one is the more gradual the succession plan, the more successful, higher probability it's going to work, Yeah, the more gradual. And so it's, it's gentle. Too many times the leader, especially the founder of the first generation, waits until the last minute, and as they're dying, they clutch their chest and fall back into the grave and toss the keys out, <laughs> and that's their succession plan. And that, those don't work. They don't work. So the more gradual, the better, which is frustrating for both, it's frustrating for everybody a little bit because it's like, okay, when's this going to happen? Mm-hmm. The younger, the learn, younger generation, I'm, I'm ready. But no, it's gradual. Mm-hmm. It's gradual. The older generation is like, I'm kind of ready. I'm out of here. No, it's gradual. It's gradual. Yeah. It's gradual. It's gradual. The, all the data that we have, the ones that are successful and best, best case scenarios uh, where we're studying best practices on this are that, number one. N- number two, um, and, and this is small businesses that we work with and churches that we work with, uh, the the higher calling, the nobility of the higher calling, I don't own this, I am managing this for God, makes me as a founder succeed, makes me have a succession plan. If it's mine, my church, mm, yeah. and some some pastors won't, never want to say that out loud, but in their, in their heart of hearts, it's my church. Mm. And they're not taking my church. I built this church. And if you get just a little bit of that down inside, it makes it very hard to run a succession plan. My business, mm. my business. And in my case, I have the benefit of having gone broke. And the idea of stewardship, that meaning that I don't own it, I'm just an asset manager for God, seared into my life. And so I said, okay, God, I am managing this for you. How, what does a good manager do? A good manager has a succession plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's they, so they don't wait till the last minute. So the more noble you are on that. Now, warning to those of you out there that are going to try this: as soon as you start planning to be less important, your plan will work, <laughs> and the and it's not as fun as it sounds. So you really have to step back up into that nobility again. So we formed, in our case, we we knew that we had to hand off ownership to good quality next generation owners. We had to hand off leadership to a leadership team that could handle it without me. And then we had to do another thing, which is a brand transfer. And pastors have a little bit of that too. Mm-hmm. And so the people are coming to see that guy. Yeah. And 
you know, how do you do that? Again, gradually, and we figured out in our case, and it's not necessarily true in a church, but in our case that a one-to-many transfer was better. So we have 10 Ramsey personalities now sure. in all kinds of areas that, are carry, that will carry the whole load that I used to. And we started measuring non-Dave revenue. Sure. How much revenue is being produced that I didn't that I don't have to do. And that's a sign of the gradual succession plan taking effect. So, mm-hmm. you know, start early, work on it, think about it, talk about it. Let everyone know. Lots of communication. The family, let the people know if that someone's on track or off track, let the congregation know, let the customer know. In our case, we've been telling the business. We've been telling the customers. This is what we're doing. That's why Ramsey Personalities. We changed the show from the Dave Ramsey Show to the Ramsey Show. Mm-hmm. So we went from Walt Disney to Disney. And so we're making these very distinct things that make it to where succession plan will work very, very intentionally. Uh, and yet what we're doing simultaneously is planning for me to be less, less important, which is really hard on your ego. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> I was, was just at a conference and I heard uh, Ray Johnston, he's pastor at Bayside in uh, yeah. Sacramento. And yeah. he said, I need to move my church from Rayside to Bayside. Ooh. And he, he said, people have, they have ego. and That'll they, preach. Yeah, so good. They, he said they have ego and they, have, they want impact. And mm-hmm. he said, if every ego outweighs the impact, you know, you've, you, God leaves mm-hmm. in he talks about same thing, a succession team and all that. And so what you're talking about in business is so applicable to church as well. Well, I've seen some people that they get to the point and then they just walk out. It's, it's a, you got to clear out the building to let the next guy handle it. In our case, we're uh, uh, being a little bit different than that. I intend to keep working, but I won't be running it. I'll sure. just be a speaker and a writer, and I'll be on the air as long as I make sense. When I quit making sense, they take me off. But um, but that you you know, say I, that'll be things. my retirement yeah. plan. Yeah. Is I get to keep speaking at Ramsey. I get right. to be one of the Ramsey personalities. But I'm currently still the CEO, sure, and I'm still the owner, yeah, uh, and the well controlling interest anyway. And so, uh, but this year, my son uh, was promoted to the president. And so he and I are running the business for the next season together. The next step will be I step out of that, and I'm only doing Ramsey personality. That may be four, five, six years. I don't know, something like that. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. That's cool to have an inside track into what's going on at Ramsey Solutions. Um, as we come to a close, I have a few final questions. There are maybe some some quick hit questions, but okay. maybe that people are interested. You you talk about uh, in the baby steps of you know avoiding debt. As, as, in any situation, you say, the only thing I might not yell at you for is like a 15-year fixed-rate mortgage uh, that's no more 25% of your take-home pay. Would you say in, in churches, would you say, hey, I'm not going to get into that? Or is there a recommendation that you have in terms of building mortgages? Or would you say be debt-free and get debt-free and stay debt-free always? I don't borrow money for anything ever because I can't find it in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a freak. Um, I'm not mad at my friends who go get a mortgage. And I'm not mad at the people who go get a building mortgage. Um, I have to tell you, I truly believe that God will supply the money to do his will. Mm -hmm. I really do believe that. Um, But we're... I'm friends with people that are in debt, and I love them, and so that's okay. Yeah. But but I do not borrow money. And by the way, I you know started out broke and 
we saved up and bought our first little $5 million building, and the, the campus that we're on right now is somewhere around $450 million mm. worth of buildings and properties and so forth, and um, it's taken a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, we just finished a 2,500-seat uh, auditorium so you're on saying, the campus. So you pay cash for all pay that. Pay cash for That's everything. Awesome. I yeah. do not borrow yeah. money. I've not borrowed a dime since I filed bankruptcy in 1988. To start with, they wouldn't loan it to me back then, <laughs> but but even if they would have, I, I became convinced that this was scriptural. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, but it's God's call on my life, and I'm not going to... I don't I don't cast stones and yeah. condemn. Uh, I, I honestly, if I could talk you into it, I believe it's your best route. Yeah, yeah. I really honestly believe that. But but that's said with no condemnation. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, a couple more here. Um, as somebody who's busy, you work hard, you're somebody who's driven, what does your time with God look like? Devotions and you know, I one of the guys that led me the Lord um, was a, a a biblical scholar, and uh, he had he grew up on a construct in a construction uh, you know family, and I'm like, how did you become a biblical scholar? I mean, he knew Hebrew, he knew everything. He was amazing. He was an amazing man. One of my best friends to this day. He's about eighty years old now, but um, uh, actually worked for him. And um, I said, how do you get up? I mean, how do you get up at three o'clock? 3.30 in the morning and study Scripture for four hours before you come to work or three hours and learn the Hebrew and all this. He goes, well, you got to go bed early. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing that. I get up at 5, and I have four years. And Sharon and I get up, both of us get up at 5, and we have a regular routine of uh, I'm on 1,043 days that I've walked at least one mile every single morning. I haven't wow. missed a day. Uh, and most of the time, three or four miles, sharing five or six. But um, so we have that in there. We we uh, you know we have our coffee. We talk about the calendar and what we're doing this week. Um, we have some prayer time. We got time to get into scripture. I've got a series of uh, scriptural uh, processes I go through every morning, um, and that that whole thing becomes God. I mean, when I'm walking, I'm with God. Yeah, that's my my time with God. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's I, I used to listen to podcasts all the time when I'm walking, and I quit. I just it's just me and God now. Awesome. And, and and cold air coming out of my mouth, whatever it is, right? Yeah, that's awesome. Is there a favorite place you've traveled in the world? Home. <laughs> no, I, 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 we've been blessed to go a whole lot of wonderful places, and you should see this world. It's a wonderful world, mm-hmm. and uh, God reveals Himself in nature, Isaiah says, yeah. and He does. It's there's some places out there that make you just. I mean, we were skiing in the Rockies last week, and uh, you go scuba diving and. Caribbean, and you stand in front of the Hubbard Glacier on the deck of a ship, and you watch your own baby be born. If you can do all that and don't think there's a God, there's yeah. probably something a little loose. Yeah. Yeah. Final two questions here. Um, no matter how much money you have, is there something that you'll always do, like change the oil in your car, or mow the lawn, or you say, This is something that I love, even if I could hire it out, this is something that I love to do? Hmm. I've quit doing almost all that, so I don't know. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm a, 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 an OCD organizer freak. And so like, I've still got, uh, tools in, in the garage and I can, I grew up working on stuff mm-hmm. and with my hands. And so I can still go in there and get a screwdriver and fix almost anything. And Sharon will help me remember to do that. But, mm-hmm. um, I, I, but if it gets to be too much, I, I'm pretty good about going, I'm not, I'm not yeah. doing that. Get somebody over here that knows what they're doing. Yeah. And so, um, but I'm not afraid to, pick up a hammer or, yeah. or a, you know, 
uh, a Phillips head screwdriver. Most of the cars I have now, I can't work on them. You know? <laughs> I don't know how to work on them, so I'm, yeah. I don't, I'm up a creek on that. But, yeah. yeah, I'm with you. I've never found a tool that I don't like. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It, you, you can go broke on that you, too. Be you, careful. You can. So it's an with expensive cash. addiction. Yeah. Yes, very good. Uh, last question is is thinking about. I mean, for me again, there's a lot of new pastors that are coming up. That you know, I'm in my 20s, and there's I, all my friends really that are in ministry. What would you hope that you inspire in the next generation of, you know, there's been 30 years of financial peace and all this that has impacted the church. What do you hope that this next wave of young pastors uh, maybe can take your principles or how you can inspire them to continue to move forward? Well, my belief is is that whether it be generational or over a, a couple of generations or whether it be over a single person, that, that uh, people that follow these biblical principles put themselves in a position to be outrageously generous. And I would love to see that happen so broadly in America that we give so much out of the Christian community that we make the government irrelevant. Mm. We take their power away to jam unbiblical lifestyles down our throat uh, because we take their money away. Mm. Um, I mean, if, if there were no orphans that Christians hadn't taken care of, if there were no widows that Christians hadn't taken care of, if there were no hungry kids that Christians hadn't taken care of, if hospitals were being built like St. Jude's on every corner, um, I mean, with what we just spend on our pets, mm. we can build a St. Jude every 45 minutes. It's nuts. And I love pets. But, I mean, the ability to completely transform this culture, mm. I mean, own it own the culture and change the way people think, not only about Christ, but also just they've been overserved by the Christian community so much that they cannot deny the power of that level of outrageous generosity. Man, that would be a cool day in America. Mm. Well, I believe that I... and. We'll pray that that day comes. I think this generation, they have the zeal to do it, uh, but it's putting their their head down and working for it. And Dave, you've been a blessing to all of us and pastors all over the world, and I just want to say thank you uh, so much for spending some time today being with us, talking church, and I know that there'll be thousands of pastors all over the world that'll, that'll get a lot out of this. So thank you again. Honored to be with you, sir. Thanks for having me. 